We probably all know or at least see on TV or in movies people who are able to uh, articulate with, with perfect words and passion the things that they believe are right. That with just the right amount of poise and emphasis, they can describe things that are important to them or important to the world in which they live. And then there's the rest of us, right? who struggle to do that, who stumble, who maybe oftentimes we just err on the side of just not saying anything because we know it's not going to come out the way we hear it in our heads. So what does it mean for those of us who are just ordinary, regular people to bear witness, to bear witness to Jesus, to what we've seen and heard as he and what he is doing presses against the powers that be? That's, that's the question for the morning. That's the title of our sermon, Bearing Witness to the Powers That Be. When I was a, a freshman in high school, I was not cool. I was a little scrawny, 119-pound kid, and zits all over my face, and... Um, I used to have scenarios running through my mind all the time and what I would, how I would like say something smooth to this girl or stand up to this kid that I didn't like. And one of, one of the things that, that went through my head that I remembered as I was thinking about this sermon was um, in geography class, there was a new girl that came in and I had been in French one for about six weeks. So I thought like I could do something kind of smooth, you know, with the French. And so I was practicing in my head, like, je m'appelle Jamine, you know, and her name, her name sounded kind of French, so I thought, it, you know, like, this would work really well. So in my head, I kind of heard this voice, and I kind of rehearsed this thing, and uh, when I went to speak to her, none of that ever happened. I didn't use a word of French, and I sounded like an idiot. That was one of the scenarios that played through my head a lot. Another one was, I, I thought... I'm, I'm a brave person, but nobody in high school knows that. And, and so I used to imagine if there would be a fire, like if, if there was a fire and like a bunch of the exits w were blocked, I ran this scenario through my mind that I would be the really courageous one and the football players would be crying and panicking and I would be up directing people and I would smash the window. I remember this, thinking about this all the time. I'd pick up one of those desks with the chairs attached that were really heavy and I'd hurl it over my head and smash the double pane window with it. And then I would lead all the crying cheerleaders out, you know, <laughs> through the broken glass, pushing it out of the way. Of course, I never got the opportunity to show that, that courage. There was, there was no fire. There were some fire alarms, but never a fire. So... My point in sharing those embarrassing stories is that we all have, have voices kind of running through our head at different times and, and certain, certain narratives and, and ideas, but we don't always know what the origin of them are or what to do with them or if we're hearing something that's true and good and should be brought out into the world or not that should be uh, responded to with criticism and sometimes that can be really paralyzing. But we see in this passage that Peter and John, as his, his, his silent buddy encouraging him there, uh, we see a boldness from just ordinary people who 
aren't skilled orators or politicians or people who have had so much religious or otherwise education who are able to speak and proclaim and bear witness to something that they have seen and heard with a lot of confidence. And so our message this morning is based around two sides of a coin, listening to the voice, listening to the voice inside, and then discerning the voice. That's what we'll be dealing with as we look at this passage here. So as we, as we look back at this passage, we're seeing the second part of a story where Peter and John are walking on a normal day, going to temple to do daily prayer, and they encounter a man who is crippled. And it doesn't tell us the inner thoughts of Peter and John. It just tells us that Peter said, look at us, and that he, he said very smoothly and clearly and proudly, confidently, I don't have any money, but get up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ. And that man gets up and walks and he's healed. And so everybody's really excited about this. Then Peter preaches this amazing sermon. And then the authorities come and they're like, hey, you're disturbing the peace and they lock them up. And so that's kind of where we pick up in the passage this morning. And if we look together at verse uh, 13, we read that together. It's describing what these religious leaders and officials are describing Peter and John as. It says in Acts uh, 4, 13, it says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So as I was reading this passage, it would, it would be easy to think about it and give like a really inspiring message that you like might leave, feel really inspired by, but you're not really have anything to do with. Like you're not going to go out probably and start healing crippled people in the name of Jesus. If you do, let me know. I would like to learn from you and be discipled by you. Um, so how, how do we relate this to, to our lives, this amazing, fantastic experience. I think here's how. We all have things in our heart, in our mind that we feel are incredibly right or important. And we want to bring those things to bear in the world around us. For many of us, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, then that at some point probably has something to do with your faith in Jesus, what you've seen and heard, what you've experienced about the person of Jesus. And we would often, especially right here in Memphis, Tennessee, in the buckle of the Bible belt, um, we hear people talk about the Holy Spirit a lot. We're in this series on Acts about the importance of the, the Holy Spirit and um, how it's the Holy Spirit it was a metaphorical wild goose that could attack you or descend on you or that you're constantly trying to chase and is really hard to catch. Um, and what happens in, in at least the culture I grew up in is you hear a lot of people who are Christians and they, they, they talk about the Holy Spirit like it's just like, well, the Holy Spirit told me uh, to do the dishes and the Holy Spirit told me that uh, you needed prayer because we gossiped about you yesterday or whatever. It's just like this really casual use of the Holy Spirit. And so I've 
I'm a little reticent, I'm a little hesitant sometimes to say when I have intuition, if it comes from the Holy Spirit or from another, another source, I think that we have more than one voice talking to us inside of ourselves at different times. And sometimes it is hard to discern what that voice, what are its origins? Where does it really come from? Unlike what we see here for Peter and John, who they know exactly what's going on and they're bold and confident in what they are doing and a man gets healed and they proclaim this new reality of Jesus, the resurrected king, who cares deeply for even a beggar on the outside of the temple. So I'd say some of these voices, they're easier to trust than others, just like, just like for Peter and John. Um, I'll, I'll share an example. One of our elders, Chris Rowland, guy prays all the time. And he texts me at least once a week and tells me he's praying for me about something. And it's amazing. And when he talks about the Holy Spirit, I believe him. He's a, he's, a, he's a man of prayer, and he says, the Holy Spirit put on my heart to pray for you. And I think a lot of times that's a pretty safe bet. If you feel prompted by a voice inside of you to lift somebody up in prayer, that's probably an easier way to tell when the Holy Spirit is moving and working inside of you. Me, with my life right now, I'm not getting as many of those prompts as I have in other points in my life. So when I get Chris's texts, I'm really happy and I'm thankful. And I also feel a little ashamed, like, oh, I didn't pray for you this week. (laughs) Maybe I'll do that right now. (laughs) Instead of text praying for you too, (laughs) maybe I'll actually just pray for Chris and what's going on in his life for a minute. So sometimes it's, it's easy. It's easy to hear and know that there's something greater than you moving you to speak or to do something on behalf of another person. Um, I, I like history. I think when you look at history, you get a more realistic and humble perspective about the time that you live in right now. I, I think the more that I learn about history, the less confident I am about all the things that I've been taught or shown but the more confident I get in some of the central pieces of the teachings of Jesus. And so this morning, I want to share with you um, a quote from the, the father of the Protestant Reformation in the Western world, a guy named Martin Luther. And some of you, if you're like, well, I don't know who that is, but I know who Martin Luther King Jr. is. Well, he got his inspiration for using that name from this guy, Martin Luther. And I want to share with you a time in which Martin Luther was incredibly confident about what he felt like God was telling him to do. And I want, you, I want us to hear it and see what it sounds like and talk about it for a moment and kind of think about how this is similar and how it's different from Peter and John. So, so this guy, Martin Luther, Catholic Church is the church of the Western world at this time, and um, he writes this thing called 95 Thesis, and he's written all all these things. See, most of people where Luther was from in Germany were illiterate, and so they had never read the text of the scriptures before. Not only that, but uh, the, the Bible 
was pretty much only translated into a language called Latin. So the only way that you would be able to read that, even if you could read, is if you were extremely wealthy or if you were clergy, you were part of the Catholic Church. So Luther, he grew up not ever having read the New Testament. When he finally reads it, he begins to feel deeply convicted about the state of the church. The practices like something called indulgences, um, where you could, you could give money and you could get people out of this temporary place called purgatory that they would go to to have their sins burned away. And so your family members, you would be thinking if they died, because everybody was Catholic, based on how much they had sinned and how many times they hadn't repented, they would be burning away in purgatory to burn off all their sins. And the clergy said, well, if you pay us money, since we have direct access to God and our priests, we can pray for them and they will get out of purgatory sooner and go to heaven. So these were one, one of the things that Martin Luther was convinced was not right as he read the scriptures. And he began doing all these writings, including the 95 Thesis, and he was brought to trial because of this, because he was stirring up the authority of the church and therefore disrupting and upheaving society as it would normally be, right? So the status quo was being interrupted and disrupted by these things that Luther was saying that he believed was absolutely true. So I wanna to read to you a quote when he's at this assembly in 1521 on April 16th, he's in the, he's in the presence of the emperor, his family, and the assembled princes of Germany Popple uh, representatives and other things that I can't even pronounce all the names of. And what, what he's being asked by this archbishop is to recant, to say all these things that I wrote, I don't really believe them because I know you'll kill me if I don't say that. And here's what Luther says. Since then your majesty and your lordships, replied Brother Martin, Desire a simple reply, I will reply. I will answer without horns or teeth. Unless I am convinced by scripture and by plain reason, I do not believe in the authority of either popes or councils by themselves, for it is plain that they have often erred and contradicted each other. In those scriptures that I have presented, for my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, for it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. God help me, amen. So that was his response. In the face of an impending death, I can't go against my conscience. I believe this is right to the point that I would be willing to die for it. That people aren't supposed to be scared that their family is burning in a purgatory or that the Catholic church has to be an intermediary between me and God. That was really important. That Luther was saying, you can talk to God. Even if you're an illiterate peasant, you just have to believe. You don't need to go to confession all these people who've set up all this hierarchy and all these ways that you got to do your songs and dances and stuff, you don't need any of them. That God has given you direct 
access to him. And I am confident of that. That is what I read in the scriptures. That is what I see Jesus to be. And he was willing to die for that. And it was clear to him. It was clear that that was the conscience that he had to abide by, no matter what. And if, if you're listening and you're like, well, I don't know if I'd do that. I don't know if I, if I do what Luther did. I don't know if I'm courageous enough to do that. Even if you feel that way, I wonder if you can relate to that idea or that feeling that your conscience will not allow you to stay silent about something. If you're married, <laughs> then you've definitely had these times, arguments with your spouse, where both of you are absolutely confident that you're right and the other person's wrong. Anybody ever been there? Any married folks? You're not going to raise your hand? Oh, few raise their hands. Think about it this way, another way. When you've, when you've felt and heard that voice, and I'm not even going to try to define what the voice is, what its origins are right now, but when you've been done wrong, when somebody's done you or a family member wrong, and you just know you have to do or say something about it. Anybody relate to that? Anybody relate to that? Raise your hand if you relate to that. Yeah. If, if you've been done wrong, you can relate to that idea. So there are those times and those places where we can relate to Peter and John. I think sometimes that voice for us is from God. I think sometimes the origin of it is the Holy Spirit, and it's very clear to us. Um, when we continue to look at this passage here, we see in verse 19 and 20, Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. In both of these cases, this is not just pious patriotism or passive parishioning of a church, but this is an active and vibrant and courageous faith that they had heard or seen something. Have you heard or seen something about Jesus for yourself? Have you chased that wild goose of the Holy Spirit? Have you ever done that? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to your partner and say, I'm going to chase that goose. And turn, turn to your other partner and try it again. Say, I'm going to chase that goose. I would bet nobody in this congregation has ever said that phrase in church before. If we want to have that type of experience and that confidence about that voice speaking to us, that Holy Spirit then we've got to chase the goose. We've got, to, we've got to go after the Holy Spirit. We've got to find out, is there something worth it to look for that we can say we cannot stop but continue to speak about what we have seen and heard? But I also want you to listen to that response because they, they ask it in the form of a question. They say, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. And they say something similar to what we heard Martin Luther say as well, because we can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. 
There's, a, there's humility there. There's this idea of bearing witness to something, that there are things that all of us, that we have seen and heard in our lives, that we, you can't shut us up about it. You know what it is. You can think about it right now in your head. There might be more than one thing, that if you talk to any person for more than 30 minutes, that's probably going to come around in your conversation. There's things that you have borne witness to, good and bad, right and wrong, things that you've done or other people have done to you that you bear witness about and that you speak truth out of those experiences. For Peter and John, for Martin Luther, that truth in these instances was the life, death, resurrection, and continued presence of Jesus in the world. Now that's all good and well, but like I was saying before, and if, when we're thinking about it, we're honest for ourselves and we take ourselves out of church world for a moment, that's not the only type of voices that we hear. And it's not always so clear who's speaking inside of our heads and our hearts. It's pretty clear for me, it wasn't God who was helping me imagine that scenario of saving the cheerleaders from the burning school. So it's really important to think about how do we know how do we know whose voice we're listening to? We are in a climate and a culture in our country right now where everybody is absolutely sure of what they believe about everything that they believe. And yet we're coming to absolutely opposite conclusions about what those things are. You guys know what I'm talking about right now. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Kavanaugh. I'm talking about that situation. We've got... Two people, one without power, one almost with the highest level of power in our country, and they're saying opposite things are true. So how do we discern the voices? How do we know if it's the Holy Spirit speaking to us? I wish that I had an easy answer to that question and I could just share it on a pamphlet, pamphlet for everybody in our country right now. I wanna go back to Martin Luther again. Remember, I like history. And, and we just heard about something amazing that Martin Luther did. You cannot imagine, we can't imagine as Americans how amazing what Peter and John and Martin Luther did at, in those moments. Because here in America, you speak your mind, it's like breathing, breathing air, <laughs> not breathing water. That would be pretty hard. It's, it's like breathing air. You can just fire up YouTube. You can get on Instagram. You can run outside and start yelling. Maybe somebody might film you too doing that, right? And you could just say what you think and say what you believe. But for these men at this time and women as well, they were doing something. They were expressing that what their personal beliefs and convictions, that just what they'd seen the eyewitness of and felt and heard was as important as an institutional truth about the world. See, the book of Acts is a really tricky book because in the book of Acts, the church was not an institution yet. It didn't have a set of norms it didn't have a status quo. It was a movement. It was just called a Jesus movement. And so the trouble is, here we are 2,000 years later, and the church is an institution. 
with norms, with things. If you do something different than a norm that somebody grew up with, they will leave your church and they'll go somewhere else to find the same norms that they have. We're not so much associated with the movement of the spirit of Jesus anymore. We're more concerned about not rocking the boat. But that's not the picture and the story that we see here. So how do we be an institution and a movement at the same time? I think it's important about how we discern the voices that we are hearing and what we think the origin of those voices actually are. So let's go back to Luther. Years later, he goes into exile. He's, he's taken into exile by some friends, and he begins the amazing task of translating the Latin Old and New Testament into a common language, German. It doesn't seem like a big deal at first, except for the printing press. Being able to print and type things is fairly new. In less than 100 years, that's been around. So you can share information. It's not all hand copied anymore. Another thing is the German language was a common uh, despised language by anyone with wealth and power. If you were somebody important, if you were a lawyer or clergy or people like that, you wouldn't spend any time with German as a language. You would speak Latin and you would write in Latin. And maybe only if you wanted to tell a dirty joke or a cuss word with a friend behind closed doors would you use the language of German. And so when Luther began to translate in his little hideaway, this book, this New Testament especially, into German, he was changing the entire Western world. And you know what he did? He also used slang. And he took liberties with names for money and with government officials and Pharisees and Sadducees, and he turned those names into things that the German common illiterate people would have understood. And so this book goes out, and all of a sudden, everybody starts learning how to read in Germany. And everybody's walking around. They're memorizing Luther's New Testament. And, and people are holding it in their, in their chest, like, like strung up to their chest. And, and people like women and shoemakers are arguing with their clergy about the meaning of God's word. And they begin to realize we are oppressed. We are not being treated fairly this is not what the word of God says. You are holding us under your thumb, but now we have knowledge, we have information. And we know that God sees us as just as valuable as you, that you have no right to hold us down. And now you have no way of doing that. You have no authority that we can any longer tolerate before we sort of could believe it. You kept us in check by this, these feelings of sin and inadequacy and all of these um, ideas about how worthless we were. But now we can read about who Jesus is and what Jesus means to us, that we matter, that we are valuable. And so a giant peasant revolt starts to take place all over Europe because the New Testament made it into the common language of the people there, the people that weren't important, the people that weren't valuable. A historian 
named Thomas Cahill, he says this, but the waves of the Reformation could not be contained. Peasants of Southwest Germany toiling in the domains of the Black Forest were now reading Luther's New Testament for themselves. And this became the largest armed rebellion in Europe prior to the French Revolution. How did Luther respond? He started, he sent out a tract called the Admonition to Peace. But the emperor began to mount armies against these peasants because they were no longer staying in their place. They were no longer serving their landlords and protecting the status quo. And so once that army was mobilized, Luther wrote, uh, he republished the tract. And here's what, what he wrote in this tract. He said, against the robbing and murdering hordes of peasants, let everyone who can, cried Luther shrilly, smit, slay, and stab secretly or openly, remembering that nothing can be more poisonous, hurtful, or devilish than a rebel. My God. And it, he was totally wrong. What was more hurtful, poisonous, and devilish was the resulting slaughter of thousands upon thousands of common men, women, and children just because they read the very book about the very man that Peter and John found their same courage and inspiration from, the same book that Luther found his courage and inspiration from to do what was right in the face of death. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean that the same man authorized, endorsed, and encouraged the murder of thousands of people who only came to the conclusion that they came to because of the book, the Bible that he translated into their language. I think it means this. We should be extremely careful and cautious about what we say comes from God within us and what we believe absolutely is true about what God wants. Could Luther find a proof text for what he said about rebellion in the Bible, in the New Testament? He could. He could find a text to say that rebellion against the government is wrong. So, there's gotta be a litmus test for this, right? There's gotta be a way to test and discern the spirit the, the urge, because you can believe like Luther, you can believe with all your heart that you're right and be wrong. And it will have consequences for people's lives around you, especially if you hold any position of power over anyone else in any way, shape, or form. And most of us in some way we do, or we will when we get older. Imagine if Luther had taken a different position. Imagine if he would have continued in the vein of the tradition he held so dear of Peter and John. Imagine how that circumstance could have been different. I mentioned earlier Martin Luther King Jr. He took the same name as Martin Luther because he was so inspired by so much of his life up until the peasant result point, well, revolt point. And Martin Luther King Jr. was very reticent. He did not often talk about what he was hearing from God directly. 
He didn't talk about his personal relationship with God that often. I think maybe he understood this delicate nature and position of power that he was in. But he does share one time, and I want to share it with you, since we're talking about listening to the voice and discerning the voice of God, and hear his testimony about what that was like for him. He was... Um, he was a couple years into the bus boycotts in Alabama. He thought it would be a short run. Most people did. And that things would go back to normal and that people, black people would be able to ride the buses and not be segregated and demeaned and treated unfairly in that way, as well as all the other ways that that was symbolically representing. He was hoping for an early resolution, but Several years later, a few years later, it's still going on. He's receiving daily death threats, sometimes up to 40 in a single day over the phone and other places. And he drives home late at night from a, a meeting to organize. And he's really tired and he's scared and he wants to give up. And Coretta, his wife's asleep. He makes himself a pot of coffee and he sits down at the table, and this is what he shares about that time. He says, I was ready to give up. With my cup of coffee sitting untouched before me, I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing a coward. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had all but gone, I decided to take my problem to God. With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. The words I spoke to God that midnight are still vivid in my memory. I am here taking a stand for what I believe is right, but now I am afraid. The people are looking to me for leadership, and if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I'm at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. Anybody ever felt like that? At that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced God before. It seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and God will be at your side forever. Almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. So I could, I could share with you many stories about people who've had experiences like this, where they heard the voice of God so clear and so present, it would sustain them for years to come in the work that they did in their life. And you are no different. Peter and John were unschooled and ordinary men. They didn't have degrees in theology. They didn't have any formal religious training whatsoever, but they had been with Jesus. They had seen and heard from him. If you want courage like that, if you want to be able to, to reach out and ask God for something and expect a response... Look to Jesus. Look at his life. There will be times when you know you've got to keep going. And the voice that you're hearing is a voice that wants you to flee and to protect yourself. And there might not be another voice present a lot of times when that voice is the loudest. I think here's, here's one of the litmus tests to discern in some of these issues of right or wrong, of power and privilege and oppression, is 
the litmus test that comes from Jesus when he says, when someone asks him, what's the, what's the greatest commandment? And he responds with, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And then the, the man asks, well, but who's my neighbor? And he tells him the story of the Good Samaritan, of a man who is on the wrong side of the religious and racial and cultural tracks, but who loved somebody. And whose fear and whose voice that he would have to compete with was one of fear that as he stood up for one without power, that his power could be taken away. His very life could be taken away. So I think that's part of how we discern these things. If we look and we find our fear based on that power or things will be taken from us, and we think we're hearing God tell us, you've got to keep your power and your privilege and protect yourself from these people trying to get your power and your privilege. I think then that's a good time to ask and to begin a discernment in the word and, and with people who you can trust to tell you difficult things. Is that God? Is that God that would ask me to do that? Is it, does Jesus tell me to defend myself at all costs? This can go from everything to what you do when a, when a sexist or racist joke is said in the office to being with your family in the holidays to decisions you make in your work when nobody else is speaking up, even though everyone knows it's wrong. These are the type of small decisions that all of us ordinary people face all the time, and it shapes our world. So, what will we do? Acts 4.16, these, these guys protecting this status quo, an institution that's very valuable and important. It, it is the church at this point, the Jewish synagogue and everything that it represents and how entangled it is with politics and everything else. What are we going to do to these men, they ask. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. They were giving away power, Peter and John. They were helping and disrupting the status quo by who they were aligning themselves with, with Jesus, with a man who said, I have come to bring freedom. I've come to take away oppression to bust those out of prison who are in prison, to, to give sight to the blind. This is the man that they said, Jesus of Nazareth. This is the man who allows this person to walk. This is the man who says, we no longer have to be scared of death, so you can't control us like that anymore. You can't control us from a fear of death. You can't control us with a fear of our lives don't matter, they're meaningless, because a resurrected peasant king has come. And he said, this is, there's a different way to live. So what are we going to do? They've done this notable sign. Will that be able to be said of us, of you, of me? If somebody comes to take something away from us, will they have to stop and say, but look at what they've done. Look at their lives. 
How could we possibly do something to them in light of the change that they've made in the world around them? Well, they have to pause. And I think it all, in many ways, rests on listening to the voices inside, but also discerning. And in that, we can either end up acting out of courage or out of rage, out of freely giving what's been given or out of scared and fearful protection of what we think is ours. Jesus shows us the way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your your word. Thank you for how it can comfort and challenge us, how it can remind us of our worth and value to you, of how you gave up everything for us so that we could live the lives that you always imagined and desired for us to live. I pray that when we find ourselves in those moments that we read about in the life of Martin Luther King Jr. when we feel totally hopeless and powerless, that we would reach out to you and that we would be able to hear that voice from your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.